0: We, uh, we, a friend of mine who has visited our church a lot calls this our halftime, um, our halftime break. We do it really to dismiss our children and, uh, and also have a chance to say hi and greet each other, greet, especially greet uh, new people, and, I, and it is so wonderful to see you guys enjoy each other, and I know in talking to guests, they feel welcomed here um, by you guys, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the pastor here, and I'm normally speaking on a Sunday. It is my privilege to most Sundays bring God's word. Uh, this will mark actually the fourth Sunday. I'm not speaking, and um, and I'm eager to get back. I was I was at a conference, a short conference uh, this week, and had a great time, and was listening to the word preached, and I enjoyed listening to it, but in hearing it, thought, I am really looking forward to Uh, studying God's Word and bringing God's Word to you guys uh, next Sunday the reason I've been out of the pulpit is uh, as most of you know my dad uh, passed away just uh, the other week and we had his funeral this past week Uh, and it was after a season of him being sick and me going down to be with him and uh, and I know some of you have heard about it already just um, I believe my dad's with the Lord I saw faith he trusted Christ expressed that as he prepared to die And uh, we just saw God's blessing and are seeing God's blessing on my family in multiple ways. So thank you so much for your prayers. Thank you for your kindness, the cards. uh, Many of you made the trip down for my dad's wake and funeral as well. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, I'd rather not be out of the pulpit for four weeks, but uh, but it is wonderful to think about uh, God's grace on us as a church, that I could be out and we could have uh, Jeff preach and Jim from our parent church and... uh, and I'm blanking out on who else is Bauer, <laughs> uh, from another sister church. And then today we have, uh, yeah, it's been a wild month. Uh, this, this, today we get to hear from Jace Hudson uh, from our sister church. Jace comes to us from uh, Covenant Fellowship Church, and that's the church where uh, we interned at, and one of the churches that sent us up here. And we're just part of this wonderful family of churches called Sovereign Grace Ministries, and it's just great to have the support and the care Uh, So I'm eager to hear from Jace, and and I believe you'll really enjoy uh, our time as Jace brings us the word. Uh, Jace is at Covenant Fellowship as a church planting resident, and what that is, uh, as we are a group of churches that uh, are passionate to plant churches for the sake of the gospel, for the fame of God's name, for the blessing of all peoples, as we're eager to do that, uh, we seek to raise young men up uh, and teams with them uh, to go and plant churches. And so there's a process involved in that. I'm going to let Jay speak a little bit about that in a minute. But he's in his residency, so he's, he's been through uh, the pastor's college, the time of preparation, and now he's in a, what we call a residency preparing to plant. Um, I warned him that there's uh, the desire that we have to plant north into Manchester, God willing, uh, in time, um, but we're not necessarily expecting that Jace would be the man. If that were, were to be the case, that'd be great, but he's here uh, as someone in this process looking to plant. We are, as a group of churches, planting uh, throughout the United States and overseas, so uh, God may have Jace uh, at a different opportunity than here. So uh, so I just wanted to, I warned him about that, that he was going to be flooded with questions um, And we want to trust him to the Lord and what the Lord might have for him uh, independently from what he's doing with us. He is um, married to Jenny. Uh, Married for five years to Jenny Hudson. They have a child, Joshua, who's 16 months old. He's from Indiana originally, which he and Mark Prater, our fellow pastor there from Indiana, calls God's country. Though we would argue with that. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, yeah. He uh, relocated to Covenant Fellowship four years ago to pursue a call to ministry, uh, pursue evaluation and development, and is in this process now as a church planting resident. So uh, I'm sure he would covet your prayers for what God's doing in and through his life and the team that might be developing as well. Uh, So we look forward to hearing from uh, Jace as he brings us God's word from Romans chapter 8. So you can be opening your Bibles. We won't have this projected today, so you'll need a Bible in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and, and one of our greeters or ushers would be glad to get you one. So, so let's welcome Jace up as he comes to Grant Scott's Word. Yeah.
1: get that a lot. Well, it is a joy to be here this morning, and uh, my first time up into this far northeast in the, in the states, so it's exciting for me to just be up here and, and uh, fellowship with brothers and sisters in the faith and get to see this part of the country a little bit, if even briefly, and uh, so, well, and I was just, this is a great building you guys get to meet in. This is so neat, the history that is up here. And uh, just thinking that you guys, all of you, me too vicariously, but, you know, we're just being branched into something that God is doing from generation to generation to generation. It's amazing. It really is. It really is. In part is, I guess in some part is what um, God has done in my own heart, which is to do church planting so that... I see, or so that we can see, God raise up new churches in new areas uh, for this generation and the next. And so that is something very dear to my heart, something that that I am very passionate about and have committed myself to. And uh, if you're not familiar as much with why be so passionate about church planting, why be so passionate about seeing new churches start up, uh, maybe a scripture I could share with you, although there could be many would be one from Ephesians, and you don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Um, God says in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that God has put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And there's, a, there's a lesson Paul's teaching throughout uh, Ephesians that Christ is now over all things and all things are being summed up in Him, which basically just means all things are working together to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. And the way that God is doing that in this world, in our time, is that He is advancing the body of Christ through His church. So, Jesus is in heaven sitting on high. His body is here on earth and it's us. And so I am passionate that each community have solid representations of Christ's body in that community. And so as a family of churches, we're all just kind of joining together being the body of Christ. As a a world network of churches, beyond Sovereign Grace, just the universal church of Jesus Christ, we are the fuller body of Jesus Christ. But then each town and city and community should have full, solid, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches in their midst. And so we're passionate about that. And I can see you are too. And that's what we're excited about. And so that's what me and my wife, uh, Jenny, that's what... That's what we were excited about to come and join Sovereign Grace and, and to do. We wanted to plant a church with Sovereign Grace Ministries. So four years ago, we moved from the state of Indiana, which had uh, no Sovereign Grace Church at the time. Still doesn't yet. And we moved to the Philadelphia area to join Covenant Fellowship Church and uh, just picked up jobs there and worked for two years while we were evaluated by the, uh, the guys at, at Covenant Fellowship Church. Um, this past year, they sent us to the, the PC, to the Pastors College, Sovereign Grace's um, college for training and equipping young men for ministry. And uh, this past year, we've been, uh, or since, since last June, we've been back at Covenant Fellowship Church doing a church planting residence. And uh, just to give you a quick idea what that is, as you would know if you're familiar with Sovereign Grace, we are passionately committed to raising up pastors in the local church. Uh, that's part of our passion. Uh, if this is God's body, then then the man that should be leading God's body, the man that should be um, bringing the gifting of preaching, all that, that should be raised up from within the body, right? And so what they've done is is they've tried to create a residence where I am exposed to pastoral ministry. So I'm getting to do counseling. I'm getting to Teach. I'm getting to lead certain things um, in concert with men who are in pastoral ministry. So I'm learning from them as I do it. I'm being sharpened, trained, discipled by these guys. And yet I am not fully in pastoral ministry. I'm, I'm given time to study, missiolo- to study church planting, to study um, the mission of God and the advancement of it. And um, to study how to be a good pastor. And, and I'm doing that also under discipleship. And so that's kind of the season I'm in right now. I'm being trained up. uh, I'm getting experience. I'm being discipled. And uh, with the men that are over me, we are casting our vision out, saying, God, where would you have us plant church? God, where would you have us be? So that's a little bit about uh, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And um, so what you guys are doing, this is an amazing thing to me, um, by inviting me in, and allowing me to preach God's word to you, you are joining in the church planting effort that me and Sovereign Grace are about. Because you're allowing me to preach God's word to you, from which um, Paul will be giving me feedback, I'll be able to grow out of this experience, and, and yet we get to grow together under God's word. So this isn't just practice up here, right? This is us opening God's word and hearing him speak to us is an exciting thing. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Romans 8 and let us hear what God would speak to us this morning. We'll be in Romans chapter 8 and we'll be in verses 31 through 39. Let us hear God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Let us pray. God in heaven, your word is life. God, your word is power. Jesus Christ himself prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth, and your word is truth, Jesus said. And so we open this book this morning, though we have many cares that we may be coming into the morning. We can list them, we can think about them. Many cares, many anxieties, many thoughts in our hearts. Or maybe we've been um, looking for life. We didn't know we were looking for life, but we were... We were watching so much TV or we were reading so many things on the internet or we were just starving for time with friends because we didn't know it. But what we were looking for is we were looking for life. So we come with cares and anxieties or we come having searched for some kind of joy and excitement in life. And we open your word this morning and we find, aha, here it is. Here is life. So we pray that God you would... You would indeed speak to us as we know it is your desire to do. We believe that your word is going to go forth into our hearts this morning and will not return void. So God, give give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive your word for us this morning. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, Romans, the book that we're in, Romans, has been called the greatest letter ever written. And it's not so much a personal letter, though there are personal components to it. It is a theological masterpiece. It is Paul's most comprehensive theological writing that we have. But if you had to sum it all up, the great subject of this book is the gospel. What Paul said is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And the whole thing, though there are various things touched on through it, the whole thing is about how God, through the cross of Christ, has judged sin and at the same time manifested His saving mercy. And so we get to our passage today. Romans 8, 31 through 39, which has been described as the highest peak in the range of these great theological mountains. Because from the heights of this passage, Paul is going to survey all that he has covered, and he's going to offer us this grand conclusion, this great summary, this great application of the gospel that he has preached to this point. And we see this starting off in verse 31 when he says, What then shall we say to these things? In other words, he's asking, How should I conclude this this great argument I've been making? That God has fulfilled all his Old Testament promises of salvation in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. That those who put their faith in Jesus are made right with God and inherit all his promised blessings. That God through Christ has triumphed over Adam's sin. That he has triumphed over our sin. That he has triumphed over death itself. So we can now live in the power of the Spirit of God. We can now live as adopted children. We can look forward to the day when the whole world will be transformed into a new creation. And we will be glorified with Christ. How can I take all of this and sum it up for you? How should you walk away? What should you walk away with? Is really what Paul is saying. What can I say now that encompasses everything I've tried to sell you? And his answer is found in the second half of verse 31. Powerfully said, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's his summary and his conclusion. Paul's point is if you understand all that God has done for you through Jesus Christ, then you have every reason you need to be confident that God is for you. He is for those who trust in Jesus for salvation. And this, to Paul, is really important that we get. Because see, Paul's just not a man sitting down to write a theological paper. He is a pastor. And he knows that when we set down this this, when we see it set down this letter, when we set down this book, and we leave this building, and we go back out into this world, we'll face enemies. We have we have enemies out there. The unrighteous will persecute us. Some of you, when I say that, you're immediately you're you having people come to mind. Maybe people you work with. Maybe family members. They give you a hard time for your faith. They don't make it easy. Or when we go back into that real world out there, we're going to face that treacherous enemy that is within. Our indwelling sin. Many of you have grappled with that enemy this past week. Sin seeking to seduce you away from God back into serving just yourself. Doing the things you know you ought not to do. Or there's the enemy always out there of death. Death. Defeated but not yet destroyed. Or there's the devil and his whole horde of principalities and powers of darkness with whom we do wrestle against. So in the face of such formidable foes, at times it can seem that the world, that this life is against us. But in in the face of these fierce adversaries, Paul boldly proclaims, that though they assail us on every side and set themselves against us, they do so to no avail because our God is for us. Therefore, none can successfully wage war against us. Any enemy of ours is God's enemy, and he will ultimately vanquish all those who stand against us and against him. And the proof that God is without a doubt for us is rooted in the death of His Son, Jesus, whom He delivered for us. And Paul lays that out so nicely for us next in verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with, us, with Him graciously give us all things? You see, if you ever doubt that God is truly on your side, just consider this, that in saving you, God held nothing back. In saving you, God held nothing back. He gave up his son for you. Didn't even spare his own son to save you. And consider what God gave his son over to. For you. Consider that he gave Jesus into the hands of his enemies the assembly of the wicked, the Jews and the Gentiles that hated, tormented, humiliated, and crucified him. God gave Jesus over into the hands of justice, where Jesus had to pay the wages for all of your sin our sin. Jesus bore His Father's holy wrath against our rebellion, against our disobedience, so that we would never have to. And God did all of this. God delivered His Son over to all of this for us, Paul says. For us. For us, our God gave up His own Son. For our sake, he paid the highest price. If he was willing to give up his greatest treasure. This This morning, I was reflecting on the song that we sang. We sang that he makes wretches his treasure. And I thought, how amazing though that the gospel is that God made his treasure a wretch. So that he could make wretches his treasure. That's the gospel story. So do you see Paul's logic here for us this morning? If God has given up his greatest treasure, if he has paid his highest price that he possibly could, if he has given us his son, if he did not hold him back, then will God hold anything back from us? He has already paid the greatest price. What's anything else to him? So if we can believe God has given the grace needed to save us, if we can say, "God, I believe you did pay the price, Jesus Christ, to save me from my sin," then do we really with- believe that God would withhold the grace we need to love our spouse well, to love our coworker well, children for you to obey your parents and honor them? Do we think God would withhold that grace that we need? to triumph over our sin, to triumph over hell? He's going to withhold that grace when he's already given us his Son? Paul wants us to say, no way! That's ridiculous that that would, be, that would even occur to us. God has given us the greatest thing. And so he'll, he'll definitely graciously with Jesus give us all things. All things. You see giving us Jesus, guaranteed that God would give us everything we need. So do you see how radically for you God is? He is for you in being a faithful Christian today. He is for you in helping you to work hard at your job this week. He is for you to be a loving spouse and a loving parent. He is for you in your witness to unbelievers. He is for you in your wrestling against Satan and against the principalities. He is for you as you fight that enemy within. God is for you to persevere to the end. He is for you and your success against all those who would stand against you. And so on and so on and so on. You can be confident today that God is for you. Because he willingly gave his son Jesus Christ to die for you. So none can stand against you. And the rest of this passage, Paul just gives you two illustrations of how this is true. That's what he does. For the rest of this, all we're going to look at is two illustrations of this truth. And the first one is, is if God is for us, then none can condemn us. If God is for us, then none can condemn us. And we see this in verses 33 and 34. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who, in, who indeed is interceding for us? You see, here Paul takes on one of our greatest problems and our constant enemies... Condemnation. And the scene he sets is one of the heavenly courtroom. Where it's you and me on trial. It's we, we are on trial here. And who is, who's here to accuse us? Well Satan, the accuser, stands there to accuse us. As does our conscience. And they are here to charge us with everything they can. And they begin by listing the obvious maybe. You're impatient with your kids. You are sloppy at your job. You neglect your spouse. You don't really want to read your Bible all that much. You watch movies that you shouldn't watch. You listen to music that you shouldn't listen to. And their charges all go to prove that we do disobey God. But then their charges start to get more personal and more serious. You aren't a very loving person. You struggle a lot with anger. You're so slow to forgive others. And you don't really enjoy serving people all that much, do you? You just kind of have to do it when you have to do it. Or you only do it when you have to do it. You see, now their charges are starting to show that not only do we disobey God, but we're also not all that much like Him either. But then the enemy's charges start to take on searing attacks. We hear biting words like, "You're so proud." Look at all of your sin. You're so unimpressive. As guilty as you are, no one really cares about you, especially not God. You call yourself a Christian. Look at yourself. You don't act much like a Christian. You're unforgiving, you're uncompassionate. You don't really care about anyone about yourself, really. Do you even really love God? I mean, do you really? Actually, you know what you are? You're just a sinner. You are just a no good, rebellious sinner. And you know what? You're guilty. Guilty is charged. Can you argue with that? And that's their charges against us. And we stand there, and can we argue against anything they've said? No. We have to say, you know what? You're right. That's all true about me. But what happens next in this courtroom that Paul is is briefly alluding to is the most startling thing that we can imagine. They stand there charging us. Guilty as charged. We stand there. Yes, it's true. I am guilty as charged. God, help me. And what happens next? God does move to help us. God, the judge himself, the one we've sinned against, stands up and declares over us, Not guilty. You see, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies us. He is for us. And the ground for our justification, the means by which God says they are justified, they are not guilty, As He says, look at my son Jesus Christ. Look at the one who paid for their sin. You see, the cross of Christ stands as our confidence in the face of future judgment and every charge of condemnation that we will ever face. Because it's there at the cross of Christ that God has justified us. There the penalty for our sins was paid. Romans 6.23 says the wages for sin is death. But right here, Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died on our behalf. For the very sins that we would otherwise deserve to die for. And more than that, Paul tells us, Jesus was raised. This demonstrated that he had triumphed over sin and over death. Our sin was dealt with. The punishment for our sin fulfilled. And now Jesus sits triumphant over sin and death and Satan. At the right hand of God, Paul says. For the work of redemption is accomplished. Everything needed to be done to grant us salvation is finished. He is taking care of every past, present, and future sin of ours. And at that high place of honor, Jesus himself is interceding for us. Hear this, friend. Hear this. Jesus is alive right now. And he is at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he does there? He's talking to the Father about you. Your name is on the lips of the Savior and in the ear of the Father this morning. And you know what Jesus is saying? My blood was spilt for them, and they have been washed white as snow. They're mine, Father. I paid for them, I bought them. You poured your wrath out on me so they would never have to face it. They are innocent. They are innocent. Brother and sister, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no need to fear the day you face God. And if you do not have to fear the day that you face God, you have no need to fear the day or any day between now and then. Because God has justified you. No condemnation can be brought against you. What charge can be brought against the one whom God himself has justified? Therefore, when you fail and sin again, today, tomorrow, this week, even in that same old sin that you're always struggling with, and Satan or your conscience are right there and they begin to accuse you, you can face those charges With confidence. Because God has declared you right with Him through the atoning death of His Son. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is or how often you commit it. The charge of guilt against you cannot stick against any whom God has justified. And this is a truth that we have to try to live out and apply every day. Every day. There is... that. It's so counterintuitive. It's not what you feel, it's what's real outside of you that matters. That's why I think, I think so many of us have found it helpful to talk about a discipline of preaching the gospel to yourself. A discipline, a self-discipline called preaching the gospel to yourself. And that, that's a phrase that gets thrown around sometimes and. And um, so some of you may have heard it. My experience has been that um, for those who have heard it, there can be kind of an ambiguity about it. It sounds really nice. I mean, Paul said the gospel is the power of God for salvation, so I should preach that to myself every day. But there can be ambiguity about, but what does that really mean? And how do I do that? And when do I do that? And what does that look like? And so I want to just take a second to say what I think that means or, or how you can apply it. Um, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it a little bit differently, so I hope it helps you. I think that means that you're aware, or you confess, or you say to yourself, that yes, though you really do sin, there is a greater reality than your sin. And that's the reality that Jesus Christ has died for that sin. So how do you preach the gospel to yourself every day? Every day. Well, you can remind yourself of the gospel in the morning when you get up and you do your devotions and you read your scripture. I mean, I think that's a wonderful practice. We should be thinking about the gospel then, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. But the most crucial, the most important times that you're preaching the gospel to yourself are also when you're sinning or when you're aware of your sin. You see, we really do sin. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we stop sinning, right? So we really do sin. And we need to be real about that. We need to be honest about it. We need to confess it. We need to see it. But there's a greater reality than our sin. And that's that Jesus Christ has already died for it. And so to deal with your sin, to really deal with it, you have to be honest about it. You have to confess it. But you also have to confess that Jesus Christ has died for it. You need to live in the reality that you are forgiven... And that you have been empowered, you have been freed by the the blood of the Lamb to live a life beyond that sin. You are not entrapped by it. It no longer has power or dominion over you. You can be free from it. There's a great freedom in knowing that you are forgiven. And knowing that you you can step into the next moment not having to submit to that sin again. See, to preach the gospel to yourself is to live in the reality of passages like 1 John 2, 1 and 2. That when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. He has borne the wrath for our sins so that there is no more for it. It is to live in the reality of Colossians 2, 13 and 14. That God has forgiven us all. All our trespasses, all, let the word all just soak into your heart. All our trespasses have been forgiven. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, when Paul asks in Romans 8:33, who shall bring a charge against us? Or again in verse 34, who is to condemn? He's not denying that there'll be many people that will bring condemnation, that will bring charges against us. He's not denying that there'll be many times that we can be rightly condemned for sin in the sense that we are guilty as charged. It's true, I did sin. But his point is that in the court of heaven, their case will not stand because of Christ atoning to death. We have confidence that God is for us. None can successfully condemn us. so we can live in the reality that God really is for you. And he's proven it. But now let's move to Paul's second illustration of this truth. Point two is if God is for us, then none can separate us. If God is for us, then none can separate us. Paul now moves from the legal problem of condemnation to the relational problem of separation. Condemnation, now he's moving to the relational problem of separation. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it's as if he acknowledges those who are going to try to challenge to do that. He acknowledges the challengers. Okay, so shall tribulation, shall distress... ...or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. The list isn't comprehensive, but it is representative. It stands for all of our enemies. Shall their attacks succeed in their attempt to separate us from the love of Christ? Unless we think Paul is just spouting off some some dangers, some trials that believers could face... ...it would be helpful for us to note that many of these trials our trials Paul has faced so second corinthians 11 for instance he recounts to us uh, a picture of his ministry and just let this let just hear this is paul this is part of paul's life okay we we tend to think of paul as you know writing these massive theological things that blow our minds away but listen to the life he lived five times he received that at the hands of the jews the 40 lashes Less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Do you remember that? They thought he was dead. Three times he, three, three times he was shipwrecked. A night and day he, he was adrift at sea. Frequently he journeyed and faced, get this, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I mean, he was just constantly in danger, it seems like. His life, he says, was marked with toil and hardship, many a sleepless night. Can you relate to that? In hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposed. That's Paul's description of part of his life. So here is a man intimately acquainted with misery often stricken with suffering so he isn't being rhetorically flashy when he says you know can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword can they separate us from the love of Christ he has suffered as we suffer and so he knows that suffering brings us to the end of our faith where we ask God are you really there and if you are do you really care Some of you have been in this place before. Some of you may be there now because of trials in your own life or trials in the life of someone you love. And if this is you, I think Paul and and I myself would want to comfort you um, that believers have always struggled. At that point in suffering, with asking, God, are you there? Do you care? Paul, Paul proves that point in the next. That's why he kind of quotes this verse that, that, that seems almost random. It seems like, whoa, where would that come from? Verse 36. It's a quote from, from Psalm 44. He says, as it is written. In other words, this is what's always been said. For your sake... Meaning, God, for your sake, God. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, here's a testimony of those stricken by suffering. And its tone implies, God, are you there? We're suffering on your behalf. See, the psalm is actually a lament because the people of God had just been defeated in a battle. And they're being dispersed. And the psalmist is crying out that God... We're being scattered. Your people are being scattered. Where were you in this battle? Where are you now? They feel abandoned by God. As if God has hid his face from their affliction and is absent from them. And so you see, Paul is showing us the believers have always struggled with suffering. Wondering if it's evidence that God is far away. That maybe he's hidden his face from us. So... Shall tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, will they separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's answer is resolute. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. You see, suffering will strike us. But our confidence through those times is that we cannot be separated from the love of Christ. The reason being, right there in that verse, the last part of verse 37, right there, because it is He who loved us. His love is is a love that did not let us go, though it meant that on our behalf He would suffer more than any man, woman, or child ever could or would. The suffering Jesus bore on our behalf is the eternal exclusion from God that we deserved. Tim Keller observed, speaking on this point, he says, On the cross, Jesus went beyond Even the worst human suffering, and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds exceeds ours as infinitely as His knowledge and power exceeds ours. That's why on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You see, it was at the son's greatest hour of need that his father turned his face away from him. And why did this happen? Why did Jesus agree to do this? Why did God the Father agree to do something so horrible? Why would they agree to be separated for the Father to abandon the Son, to feel the rejection of His Father? Why would they do that? It is so that we would never have to. His love compelled Him to. So you see, in the the, the face of the hardship and the trials and the suffering that we face, Our confidence that God has not abandoned us is not in our love for Him. It is in His love for us, already demonstrated and proven. Through our suffering, or though our suffering may make us feel far from the love of Christ, in those moments we have to recall the greater suffering that Christ Himself faced on our behalf. And beholding Him there, in His anguish, in His pain, Our faith can be stirred that even in our suffering, our God is for us and he will not let us go. But it's amazing, as if that weren't enough, as if that weren't enough, the passage says that there is still yet more. Not only are our sufferings unsuccessful in separating us from Christ's love, but through him who loved us, we are more than conquerors. Now, wait a minute. Did you catch that? That's strange. Think about Okay, look at the words for a minute. If you've got your Bible, look at it. We may expect Paul to say, through Christ's love, you can be a conqueror. Okay, that'd be great. We could, we could, we could preach a sermon on this. He says... We are more than conquerors. What's more than a conqueror? That's my question. When I read this, I thought, conqueror I can deal with more than conqueror. What is more than a conqueror? If you're a conqueror, you win. What's more than winning? What's more than coming out successful? What's more than coming out on top in the end? What's more than a conqueror? This is what I think he means. To be more than a conqueror means that you do more than just win, but you subdue your enemies to such a degree that they're now able to serve you for your better. You see, one who victors in battle comes out the champion. He comes out the conqueror. But the one who is more than a conqueror is able to take his enemy and not just beat him, but so badly subdue him that his enemy now serves him. So the one that was out to destroy him now helps him for his better. Do you get that? That's more than a conqueror. So Paul is saying when suffering strikes a believer, instead of separating us from the love of Christ, suffering and trials, and you have to listen to this, this is so against how we think, But this is how God's economy works. Trials and tribulations are instead a means by which we become more than conquerors. In other words, affliction would desire to separate you from the love of Christ, but instead it cannot separate you from the love of Christ, and Christ now uses it for your good. And this is accomplished not by us, but by him who loved us, Jesus, who now reigns on high. I recently had a friend telling me about, um, he came to me and he was just sharing about his life, and he was talking about these financial problems he was having. Wasn't sure he was going to have enough in the bank to pay the bills. Actually, he knew he didn't have enough in the bank to pay the bills next month. But he wasn't in my office sharing that with me, crying. Crying distraught, upset, that it was almost said like a, oh, so I've got all these things, actually he wanted to talk to me about a girl, so, <laughs> so what's really big in his life is this girl that he likes. what's really small in his life was that he didn't have enough money for the bills next month, and I was just, whoa, wait a minute, before we go to the girl thing, did you just say you don't have enough money for the bills next month, how are you doing with that, are you okay, what's going on? And he was just so casual about it. Oh, yeah, well, you know. He said, when we were, small, when we were young, uh, we didn't have much money growing up. And over and over again, he said, over and over again, we would get to a, a point in the month where we didn't have any food in the house. And my mom would say, I don't know what I'm cooking for dinner tonight, so let's all pray. And so they would pray. And he said, we would just cry out, Jesus we trust you, we know that you've died for our sins, you've done the greatest thing, and so if you've done the greatest thing, you can do the lesser thing, and I'm thinking, wow, this is the passage we just talked about, okay, and so he's saying, we, we know you can do the lesser thing, so would you just, you know, give us some food, provide for us our daily bread, and he said over and over again, there would be, they would have these occurrences, like all of a sudden in the day, that mail, or in the mail that day, there would be a gift card, for, you know, for the grocery store. Or there would be a bag of groceries mysteriously left on their porch, you know, as if someone were listening to their prayers and know right when they needed it. And someone was. It was God. And so he had this amazing faith in the Lord that I've seen Jesus provide. And so because I've seen Jesus provide, I'm not really worried about next month because I know he'll provide. And I thought, he's more than a conqueror. Because you see the trial that he has right then and there, that doesn't bother him. He knows God's going to use that to serve him and already did in the past. His family faced trials. They didn't have much money. It was hard. But God used that in this man's life. It forged inside of him a faith that God's more triumphant than that. It's not going to stop him. I don't know what trials you face today, and I certainly don't want to make light of any trials that you face. But if you believe in Him who loves you, if you believe in Him who has suffered so much for you, then I believe God would want you to have confidence that your suffering will not separate you from the love of Christ, nor will it ultimately defeat you, but instead God will use it. Maybe in a thousand ways you can't see right now. He will use it to serve you. God can use suffering to move us into a ministry He's prepared for us. God can use suffering to kill a form of worldliness inside us. God can use trials and always uses trials to make us love Him more and this world less. I don't know how God will use your trials, but I know from this passage that God will use it. And that can be your hope. Because God is for us through Christ who loved us. We are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Okay, I'm, I'm going long, but... Is it okay if I share one more story about this? Okay. You can tell me now. This just... I want to give you another illustration of this because I think it's... Suffering is so pervasive. It's such a loud voice in our life that these truths can seem dim. And I think they have to, they have to burn brightly for us. They have to burn brightly, especially when we're not suffering, so that when we do go into suffering, they're alive. And um, this passage was illustrated for me again um, this year. That even in death, this is true. And this past year, I had a friend die. And uh, he was a strong believer. But before he became a believer, he was... uh, for many, many years, deeply addicted to drugs. But graciously, at one point in his life, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ broke in, and he placed his faith in Jesus, and he was saved from all his sins. But his whole life then, after that, as a Christian, was one of constant battle. He was always fighting his drug addiction. And one of his his favorite quotes was from John Piper. That's just this one line. Faith is a spiritual feasting on Christ with a view to be so satisfied in Jesus that the power of all other allurements are broken. You can imagine why that was so meaningful to him. He wanted to see the power of all other allurements broken. His soul loved the Lord, but his body loved the drugs. And so his walk with the Lord was constantly two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. And unfortunately, uh, in a moment of temptation, he gave in, um, when his body was screaming for drugs, he gave in, overdosed, and died. Just like that. And I can look at that situation, and I can wonder, what's up with that, God? What's up with this, God? How is my friend who is a Christian more than a conqueror here? Wasn't he defeated in the end? Didn't his sin get the best of him? Isn't he dead because of it? But here's the deal. Death did not defeat my sin, or my friend. Did not defeat him. Because of Christ's love for him, a love that saved his soul from hell. My friend was in the very moment of death, in the presence of his Lord and Savior, and there for the first time in over 20 years, his body was no longer crying out for drugs. He was free, a freedom that he had never known before, free to be totally satisfied in Jesus Christ and see all the other allurements in life broken. And so, yes, I believe even in death, Through the love of Christ, we are made more than conquerors. And so with Paul, we can say at the end of this passage like he does, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor anything to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ's atoning death, which has proven God's love for us we can have confidence that God is for us nothing can separate us from him so when trouble, trial or anything else in all creation seeks to we can believe Christ's love is so compelling that we'll never forsake him and it is so powerful that we'll, he will turn our enemies into our servants truly brothers and sisters Christ our God is for us. And none can stand against us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that in this life of uncertainty, we can be certain that you stand with us. That you are for us. That none can stand against us. And this is true because you have proven it through giving your son Jesus Christ for us. so God, we delight, we delight in this truth and pray that it would permeate our soul and our lives and that we would walk out the rest of life in the comfort of knowing that our God is for us and is so until the day we meet you face to face and you tell us it is true, that you are for us. None did Stand against us. In Jesus' name, amen.